0: Today, we're going to wrap up our series made for this uh, by looking at grace. And the story we just heard read from 2 Kings 5 is all about grace. In fact, the whole Bible is all about grace. But in this little story, in this often neglected part of the Bible, we actually can see the whole storyline of the Bible played out. We can see why we need grace. We can see what grace requires of us, where we can find grace, and how grace changes us. So what, or why, what, where, and how. So why do we need grace? If someone were to ask you what this story is about, the story we just heard, our first inclination would probably be to say something about, it's a story about a man with leprosy who gets healed. And it is, But it's so much more than that. It's about a man in desperate need of grace. In the Gospels, there's a story where a a paralytic man is brought uh, by his friends to Jesus. And it's one of my favorite stories. It's it's one of the, the stories I remember from when I used to visit... Uh, summit back in the day, um, and it's, it's a story where all these guys have this friend who's, who's lame, and, and they hear that Jesus can heal people, so they, they make all this effort to get him to Jesus, but when they get to where Jesus is, there's this crowd. He's inside this house, and there's this crowd, and there's no way to get him in, so they climb up on the roof, and, and they, they poke a hole in the roof, and then they figure out how to lower this man down, and when he finally gets at the feet of Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. I'm sure the guy was like, well, thanks, Jesus, but my legs, right? Like, I, I, I want to be healed. And it's not that Jesus wasn't concerned about his physical healing because, in fact, Jesus would heal his legs. In fact, Jesus preaches his first sermon out of the book of Isaiah. He pulls out the Isaiah, Isaiah scroll and, and, and he quotes it. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up that Isaiah scroll, puts it away, and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to give the blind back their sight. He came to heal people physically, but not just. His mission is so much bigger than that. And Jesus' initial response to this paralytic man shows us the more. Jesus essentially is saying to the man, My friend, do you know what's really paralyzing you? I'm going to heal your legs. You don't have to worry about that. i got that, but I've got so much more to offer you. How would you answer that question? If Jesus asked you, what is paralyzing you? What is really paralyzing you? What would you say? Our outer brokenness is often the occasion when our real problem can be dealt with. Naaman, like every other human being, had a relationship with God. Now, he didn't know he had one. He, he wouldn't have said he had a relationship with the one true God, but he did. And no matter who you are, whether you know it or not, you have a relationship with the one true God. Naaman led troops against God's chosen people in Israel. He was, he was, he was a Syrian army official. He was, the, he was the worst enemy of God's people at that time in history. He worshiped a false god named Ribbon. He, he had slaves, and I'm sure he enjoyed all the benefits, all the immorality that comes from being a famous soldier. Yet he wasn't beyond the reach of the God who created him, who thought him up in his mother's womb. Like we saw in the first week of this series, all of us have been created in the image of God. And whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, we have a relationship with our Creator, And as we look at this story, we'll see our creator is always moving towards us. Now, we might be running as fast as we can in the opposite direction. But no matter how far or how fast we run, all we need to do is turn around and he's there. Isaiah 46, 13 says this. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away and my salvation will not be delayed. Did you hear that? It's not far away. Even if you've run far away, it's not far away. It's brought near. It's right there. You and I, we are often unaware of God's nearness to us, especially when we're in the process of running away. It's one of those things that we can only see as we look back and reflect on our story. And most most testimonies have a common thread. Uh, There's some trial or transition or tragedy that disrupts a person's life. The loss of a child... Or a sickness, a betrayal, a divorce, a a forced bankruptcy, some kind of rejection. Why? Why do all testimonies have that common thread? Because our outer brokenness is often the occasion when our real problem can be dealt with. Now, I need to be clear and say that there is not a direct correlation between our outer brokenness and our own personal sin. It's not uh, if you get cancer, it's because of your sin. But your cancer might be the very occasion when your real problem of sin can be dealt with. There's a young couple in our community. Both have graduate degrees. They're very smart. Uh, They come here with friends on occasion because church seems like a a good thing to do. And we've got a really awesome kids ministry. Uh, They've got two very healthy, smart kids. They're doing well in school. This family regularly volunteers with with a nonprofit to help homelessness. Their house is paid for. They have great jobs. They they keep getting promotion after promotion. They keep getting bonus after bonus. They have a great reputation. And as much as we all want to hate them because their life is going so well, we can't because they're just good people. There is nothing more tragic than a happy but godless life. Our outer brokenness is often the occasion when our real problem can be dealt with. I remember as a high school senior having won my seventh and final Christian of the Year award at my Christian high school. um, I remember after winning that award realizing that I was the most godless, godly person I knew. And that scared the spit out of me. I remember I started praying. I started begging. I started pleading for God to do whatever he needed to do so that I could have a relationship with him. Because you see, I I didn't. I didn't have a real relationship with him. All my godliness didn't bring me closer to him. And so I prayed and I asked and I said, I want you to do whatever you have to do so that I actually have a relationship with you, so that you're real to me. And God answered that prayer very quickly. I, I think God always answers that prayer quickly. So be careful and think about it before you pray it. Because it was painful and it involved unimaginable outer brokenness. Our outer brokenness is often the only way that you and I can deal with the real problem. So what is our real problem? What's your real problem? Do you know what it is? Do you know what's really paralyzing you? We all have the same one. It's the same as Naaman's. As we heard the story, did it strike you that, uh, that God could have cured Naaman the minute Naaman showed up in Israel? The minute Naaman showed up at the door of Elisha, he, he could have been cured. Elisha could have cured Naaman on the spot. In fact, Naaman, who didn't even believe in Elisha's God, knew that. He mentions it in verse 12. He said he could just wave his hand over the spot of leprosy and I will be cured. See, God is going to cure Naaman's leprosy but he wanted to cure him of so much more than that and so he starts by healing the leprosy of his heart that is eating him up in a way the leprosy of his body could never do the real leprosy the 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 real thing that was paralyzing Naaman was pride and the treatment was humility the insult is humility did you hear the insult in the story Elisha doesn't even come to the door when when Naaman shows up. He sends his messenger. Naaman, this big time, um, you know, famous army captain shows up at his door and he shows up with tons of jewels and money, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. Uh, He's one of the most important people in the known world. And Elisha sends his messenger to him. He is insulting Naaman. See, our problem is the same as his. Pride is something that is growing in every one of our hearts, and it's eating us away. In this series, we've been looking at the first two chapters of Genesis. And in the third chapter, we get to the fall of mankind. And what caused the fall? Pride. The fall is the result of us wanting to be like God, knowing good and evil, apart from having to listen to what God says. Our first sin was wanting to decide for ourselves, to trust ourselves above all else. We chose self-sufficiency instead of dependence, and that is at the core of every bit of our problems. I was listening to a sermon uh, where the pastor was sharing about being asked to speak at two different private school chapels within the same week. And these private schools weren't Christian schools, but they had a Christian-ish veneer because it seemed like a good-ish thing to do. And so on occasion, they would have chapel and they would invite pastors or or spiritual speakers to come and talk with their students. And this pastor said after speaking at both, uh, he chose to do a, a question and answer time with the students. And he said the first private school he went to, he said during the question and answer time, the kids were really flippant. Um, they, they, they weren't really that interested and most of their questions were just meant to try to trip him up. You know, like ask questions like, did Adam and Eve ride on the back of raptors? Which we talked about in the first week. Yes, they did. Um, and, uh, and so like all their questions were kind of like that. Like they didn't really care and they didn't really mean anything. But then he said when he went to the second private school, Um, The students at this private school were as bright, if not brighter, than the kids at the first school. But all these kids had cerebral palsy. And he went on to describe how different that question and answer time went. And and not just because it it was so much uh, more uh, hard for the students to be able to get out their questions. It didn't just take more intentional listening to understand what they were asking. He said the the difference was so much more profound than that. He said, what was so different about the kids at the second school was they had no conceit, none of the flippancy. Life is hard. And these students knew it, and they didn't just know it intellectually. Every muscle of their bodies knew it. And he said, having had these two very similar yet profoundly different experiences in such a short time showed him how naturally you and I grow up self-sufficient. We all grow up saying, don't tell me what to do. I know what I'm going to do. I can handle life. I can figure it out on my own. I can decide for myself what is good and what is evil, what matters and what doesn't. We all grow up with the hiss that says you can be your own God. So without outer brokenness disrupting us, without trial or transition or tragedy, you and I cannot see our real problems. See, these kids from that second school, these kids with cerebral palsy, weren't shallow because they knew suffering and they longed for something more than just answers about pet dinosaurs. Their outer brokenness had made them open to consider the real problem and to long for the real solution, which is grace. For some of you, this is acute. Your outer brokenness cannot be ignored. Your sickness or your failing marriage or the anger that has lost you friends or your job. uh, That's right there at the forefront. There's grace. You just turn around. It's there. It's right there. God is right there. And wherever God is, there is grace. Without the outer brokenness, you and I are incapable of seeing the why of grace. So that's the why. What does then grace require from us? Well, grace always comes to us in the same way it came to Naaman. In the beginning, grace is nothing but an insult. It always starts this way. Before you can build a palace on a site, you have to first knock down the shack that is already there. And so the demands of grace are always insulting at first. They go after our self-sufficiency. They go right after our pride. And when you begin to experience grace, when you first bite into it, on the outside it's bitter, but once you make it through that first layer, it is infinitely sweet. But to get there, it requires humility. And although Naaman lived thousands of years ago, his problem with grace is the same problem that you and I have with it. Grace is simple, and that makes it offensive. You can see it in verse 10. What does Elisha say? He says, just wash. And Naaman's response is to march off in a rage. The simplicity of what Elisha says to him offends him. See, we expect healing and salvation to be something sensational and elaborate and dramatic and impressive and complex. I'm listening right now to Jeffrey Tambor's autobiography. Jeffrey Tambor was the, was the father on Arrested Development. And so I'm listening to his, uh, his autobiography. And for a little while, he was into Scientology. And, and one of the things that stood out to me as he was talking about that experience, first of all, that the fact that throughout the whole book, he seems like a very sane, rational man. So like, like why, why would he ever get into that? But, but what, what was interesting to me is that when his life started falling apart, When he found that that his outer brokenness could not be ignored any longer, he found something comforting and hopeful in a religion that said, if you work hard enough and if you pay enough money, you can move up these levels. They're called called operating Thetan levels. Um, And and he even mentioned the name. The the name Thetan to him was so intriguing and comforting to him because it said to him he he was part of something complex and incomprehensible that only the brightest and most enlightened and richest could take part in. See, his outer brokenness led him to religion, not grace. Grace is always simple. It's always insulting, and it always requires humility. Naaman is offended by the simplicity. Naaman essentially says, like, all right, come on, Elisha. Like, make me go get the the broomstick of the witch of the West or or destroy the ring or or pass through the knights that say knee. Like, make me do something. Send me on a quest of some sort. But grace is simple. It's simple enough for the least of these to understand. Wash, repent, and believe. Any idiot can wash, repent, and believe. So so people without money or without power, without any goodness or any morality, they can do it. It's as if nothing about us matters when it comes to grace. Nothing about me can merit or earn or attract the grace of God. Yep, that's right. (laughs) Right? Believing that is a prerequisite for experiencing grace. Grace requires that. Nothing about us matters a bit when it comes to grace. And that statement requires tremendous humility. And I know that sentence seems to invalidate the previous one. But but listen, grace is already there. Remember Isaiah 46:13. It doesn't require anything for us uh, for it to exist. But the only way you and I can see it there is we have to turn around. That's the only way that you and I can see that it's always been chasing us down. But to actually do that, to actually make that turn requires humility. It's there whether we, well, whether we turn around or not. But to see it requires humility. So that's what grace requires. So where do we find it? For this we have got to go back to the first part of the story. Originally... How did Naaman find out about healing? It was from a a little slave girl. It was from a girl that he ripped from her family, that he he destroyed her family and brought her into his house to be a slave. This unnamed girl was at the bottom of the social ladder. She was a female in a culture where whether you were a slave or not, uh, you were still treated as such. She she was a child. She was probably 10, 12, maybe 14 at the oldest. She was a foreigner. Not only that, she was a foreigner to, to to an enemy nation. She was at the very bottom of the social ladder, and yet she's the one that God speaks through. This child, who every day had to do simple manual labor duties, living a life, a harsh life as a slave, had an understanding of her true calling and saw a much bigger, much more exciting existence than what was visible in her circumstances. This 10-year-old girl looked at her owner and saw someone made in the image of God. I don't want to minimize the evils of slavery. In fact, the reality of the evil of slavery makes this story so much more unsettling. Grace is always shocking and disruptive. What this little girl does, I would never ask of anyone who finds themselves to be a slave. But that's why it's shocking. That's why even though we don't know her name, we know this story. So we want to find where grace is. We find the humble and the uncool and the uneducated, those without money, without worldly success. We go and we find the oppressed. Did you notice that Naaman's slaves, the ones he brought with him to see Elisha, understood what was happening before Naaman did? When Naaman goes off in a rage, they're the ones that have to convince him. They're the ones that say, wait, wait, no, don't don't walk away. Do what he says. The reason is it was easier for them to get it than it was for him. Oppressed people know powerful people are lucky and powerful people believe they are skillful. Oppressed people know that powerful people are lucky and powerful people think, believe that they are skillful. People who have failed know how hard life is. Failures know how weak people are. Successful people stay deluded about it. When successful people hear the gospel that you you and I can only be saved by grace alone, not by anything that we have done, they often reject it. Our outer brokenness is the only way that you and I can deal with our real problem. That's why the humble, the uncool, the failures, the oppressed get it first, and that's why God chooses them to speak it. That's why it's in them where we find it. And this is consistent throughout the entire story of the Bible. Go back to the, 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 Genesis, the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. At the very end of Genesis, we have the story of Joseph. And remember, remember Joseph was, uh, was sold into slavery in Egypt by, by his brothers. His brothers were jealous of him and, and greedy, and so they sold him away. And while he was in Egypt, he ended up in prison. And, and while he was in prison, there was a great famine that came upon the land. And the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the, in the whole known world at the time, had no idea what to do. Nobody knew what to do. No one understood the problem, but the answer was in Joseph, a slave in a dungeon. Or think of Goliath, the giant. No one knew what to do with him. The answer was in a young boy named David who had a slingshot. Look at all the great countries of the the world. Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and Rome. And then God comes to the Israelites, the smallest and weakest of all the peoples of the world, and he says to them, the answer to the world's problems is going to come through you. And through them, the answer does come. But he doesn't come as a somebody. He comes as a nobody. Jesus isn't born in Jerusalem, the the capital city. He's born in, in Bethlehem, this little podunk town. And not only that, he, he's, not, he's, he's born in a, in a stable. And he's not privileged, but he's raised poor. And, and he doesn't build his kingdom with knights and dignitaries, but with illiterate fishermen and abused prostitutes. He doesn't move up the ranks of nobility, but instead hangs as a criminal naked on a cross. That is where the grace of God has always been found. The world says to us, the solution to all of our problems will happen in the convention centers, or the throne rooms, or in the Ivy League schools, or from Hollywood studios. But the gospel says the solution to the world's problems comes from stables and slave quarters, from little fishing boats and brothels. If Jesus had come as a somebody, he would have never been crucified. Somebodies don't get killed Nobody's will find grace before somebody's because because nobody, because a nobody died. Nobody's will find grace before somebody's because a nobody died. The one and only true somebody became a nobody for our sakes. That's the gospel. A lot of people who make up this church are very smart. A lot, a lot of people here are very well off. And, and, and certainly there are people here who are top of their fields. That's good. That's, that's not bad. That's good if, and this is a big if, we see that as Christians, we will always look like nobody because Jesus was a nobody. So if you're successful, great. If you're the top of your field, great. That's not a bad thing if we know as Christians we will always look like a nobody because Jesus was a nobody. To be transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others means to become a nobody for the sake of others. That's how grace changes us. One of the most striking responses um, in reading the story of Naaman to me was after he was healed... Uh, what, what he says. It's in verse 17. He essentially says, hey, all right, you're not going to take any of my money that I brought you. And the reason Elisha doesn't take any of the money that he brought him because Elisha wanted him to get that it's all about grace. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn this. You don't have to pay me for healing you, for saving you. And then Naaman's response is, well, can, can you give me a pile of earth I just just want some of the sod from this land, as much sod as two mules can carry on their back. And I'm going to take it with me back to Syria. See, Naaman knows he's going back to his own country, to his own people, to his own king, who all worship in the temple of the false god, Rimmon. And this is what he says. He says, I'm going to bow down there because I'm going to do my job, and I'm going to serve my king, and I'm going to love my country and my people, but right behind me there's going to be a servant who is is bringing earth from Israel. And that servant is going to put the, the earth beneath the ground that I stand on. And I'm going to let everyone know through my actions and through my words, when I kneel down, the rest of you might be kneeling down before a false God, but I am kneeling down to the one and true God. See, Naaman looks at Elisha and he doesn't say, hey, don't send me back there. Don't send me back there to those people, those pagans. They didn't get it. They don't get it. They don't understand me like you understand me. Please don't make me go. No, he says, I'm going. See, there are a lot of people who profess to be Christians who feel that way, though. I don't want to be out there. Or, or I need to make sure that I make a statement and I draw a line so that you know where I stand and where you are and that there's a separation between the two of us. I, I'm going I'm to make that line so clear so that you don't mess me up. That's not religion. I mean, that's not grace. That's religion. But grace changes us to say, just like Naaman said, I'm going back. I'm going back because God now has prepared me to love people more than how I loved people before. God has now made it where I can serve my king more than I can before. And I'm going to let them know what I'm doing it for. I'm going to find a way to show people that I'm not worshiping it at whatever God they worship at, at the God of success or, 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 or fame or whatever. I'm going to show them that I'm worshiping the one true God. See, grace changes who we hang out with. Sure, we, we hang out uh, with other Christians. Christ-centered community is important. But grace makes us long to hang out with those who are running away. Do you long to hang out with those who are actively running away. If you don't, my guess is you haven't really encountered grace, because that's how grace changes us. It makes us long for those people. It makes us long to be around those who are running away. Do you know that Jesus actually preached about Naaman? In Luke 4, in that same first sermon, the very first sermon he preached, at the end of the sermon, he says this, there were many lepers in Israel in those days, but Elisha only healed Naaman the Syrian. Jesus ends his very first sermon by saying, the only people who get healed are the outsiders, are the ones that religious people shun, the ones that religious people separate from. So then once you realize that, once you realize that's how Jesus ended his sermon, it makes sense their response. Those people, after Jesus' first sermon, wanted to kill him. In fact, they tried to throw him off of a cliff because of his exposition of Naaman's story. Do you know why? Because what he was saying to them is that the true God is not just your God. It's not like you have your God and then they have theirs. He's the God of everyone. God has a relationship with everyone, whether they know it or not, or whether they want it or not, and He is constantly chasing down every single person. And God's chosen people hated that. They hated that thought so much that they wanted to kill Jesus for saying it, and eventually they did. We did. But Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. To experience grace, any of us, no matter what we've done, all it takes is this. It's just turning around and it's there or he's there. Isaiah 46.13, I am bringing my righteousness near and is not far away and my salvation will not be delayed. He's right there. Have you turned around? And if you have, know that as we are being transformed more into the image of the ultimate nobody, God will invite us again and again and again to invite those that are running away to see him. That's what we were made for. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that this obscure story about a Syrian army official and a slave girl and a prophet can show us so clearly your purpose for each of our lives. Father, you want us to experience your grace, the grace that can come simply by us turning around and looking And Father, for those of us who have experienced that, I pray that that your grace will make us so aware of of your goodness and and, and what you have to offer that we can't help but go towards those who are running away and say, you don't have to keep running. And Father, you know the people in our lives uh, that are are there and you know uh, the places where we're nervous about doing that. But Father, I pray that your spirit would empower us and Father, if there are any here that are running away, give them the courage and the humility to just turn around. Father, we pray this all in the name of the, of the one who died for us, Jesus. Amen.